right, so let's uh, start by, we'll read verses 1 through 16, which is what we will be striving to get through today. Of course, we're, we're making a transition now. Uh, first three chapters of Ephesians, we saw really the unity of Jew and Gentile Christian uh, through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and how that mystery, which was discussed, was uh, revealed. Now, through the rest of the letter, Paul's going to provide specific direction as to how the unity of Christ affects their lives and their day-to-day relationships. And as we go through these last three chapters, every time we study, we want to know and understand how did it apply to to those it was written to, or the individual it was written to, depending on the letter, and then how can we take that and make application to our own lives? So it's not like we're studying history, although the history is important. We are studying how can we be better Christians, how can we draw closer to one another, how can we draw closer to God? And that's what we'll attempt to do today as we study the first part of this fourth chapter. So let's read it through. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, What does it mean except that he has also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So as we, you know, as I studied this, uh, there's about 382 sermons that you, can, <laughs> that you can make out of what we just read. Uh, it's amazing. You go through things like this that you've been through many times, and each time you go through it, you see something else that you can 
work on that you can apply, that you can improve in your own life. So let's start with verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So Paul starts by identifying himself as the prisoner of the Lord. This kind of shows, at least in my mind, the commitment level that Paul had. And he points out to them that he is imprisoned because of his faith and because of his sharing of the gospel. And he says that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So this suggests that Christians uh, were to conduct their daily lives in a manner consistent with being called a child of God. Now, the King James Version says that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. So vocation rather than calling. So what's a vocation? That's not a word we use often, but what is a vocation? Okay, it's a work. That's right. Um, now, do you think of the fact that your Christianity is a work? It's something that God has given you to do throughout the rest of your life. Which means then that as, as Christianity is our responsibility, it's our responsibility to walk or to practice our Christianity on a daily basis in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. Now, consistency, I don't know about you, but consistency, I think, is one of the hardest things that we as Christians have to face. Consistency in our marriage. Consistency in the way we treat one another. Consistency in the way we present Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation to those that we come in contact with. Uh, as a parent, who here believes they were a perfect, have been a perfectly consistent parent? Not me. Maybe Donna. Not me. Certainly not. Consistency, but as a Christian, consistency is what we are striving for, right? That's why we spend as much time in the Word as we do and why we uh, work at our vocation or at our job. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. It's kind of interesting when we look at this, Paul, through inspiration, he doesn't, he doesn't just say, love one another, right? He drills down and gives us several examples of what the expectation was for them, and then it becomes an expectation for us in the way we treat one another. With all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. So, with all humility, and I... And I'll remind you, I study out of uh, primarily the New American Standard. And so most of the things that I'm reading to you, that's where it's coming from. But with all humility, uh, King James Version says, with all lowliness. What does it mean to be lowly? To be humble. 
All right, that, that, that's exactly right. So humility is kind of the overall framework that we work under with how we relate to one another. And this is so critically important for us as Christians to know and understand. It says then in gentleness, uh, American Standard says, and meekness. We have to practice meekness toward God in submitting to his will and then meekness toward our fellow man. This allows us to have a forgiving and gentle spirit as we submit to one another. I don't know if you've ever done a study. I, I led a study a number of years ago on one another passages, all of the one another passages in the New Testament. It's amazing how much there is if you look at those passages as to how we are to submit to one another, how we are to treat one another, how we are to interact with one another. The enemy is out there. The enemy's not in here, right? And our relationships with one another need to be very solid, and we need to place our brethren and their needs above our own. It says with patience, uh, King James says with long-suffering. Patience is a word we use often. We don't use long-suffering uh, quite as often. If we're exercising long-suffering, we will not be easily or quickly provoked or angered toward one another, right? What's it mean to be long-suffering? Okay. Yes, to, to show patience to, uh, you know, when I think of long-suffering, can you think of anything that you have suffered long through in your life? Most of us can. Uh, and it's usually not a positive. I mean, do you think of long-suffering as, as positive? Not generally, Right. But this is exactly how we are to interact with one another. We are to be long-suffering toward our brethren. And then it says, showing tolerance, or uh, King James says, forbearing one another. So what Paul's done here through inspiration is he's done a drill down as to this is what I mean when I say this. And how far you are to go in your relationship with one another. Forbearing one another. Now, in what areas are we to be forbearing and tolerant and humble and long-suffering? Bruce. This verse is the very picture of our master, Christ, lowly, meek, long-suffering. And uh, Brother Earnhardt uh, used to preach uh, a sermon about uh, does God hurt? Does God mm. feel pain? And that's the pain that Christ went through for us and still does. He's long-suffering. He suffers 
uh, in a sense that his his disappointment with us, uh, his uh, great pain when we reject him or when uh, we don't love as he did. And so this is describing the Christian. The Christian is to be Christ-like, and all of these things uh, picture Christ, the forbearing. He left everything behind to come here and die for us that we might live. Thank you, Bruce. Absolutely. Yes, with with the example of Christ, and we're going to see that when we get into chapter 5 as well, when we talk about the marriage relationship. With his example, we always have uh, work to do in our lives, and we've, we've never come close to getting there. Um, talking about forbearance or tolerance, we're to tolerate people who may not have a full understanding of God's word, but we're not to tolerate sin. You have to oppose that. I had a friend I worked with, was he was not a Christian, anything. He never attended anywhere. He lost his brother young. He was concerned about the life hereafter. I had a long study with him. He said, well, my mama told me I was a Jew. And they used this verse in the preceding one, verse 3, was the last thing we talked about and said I was not being tolerant of the Jewish religion. But you can't tolerate sin. Very good. You're, you, you are absolutely right, and I'm glad you pointed that out. When we talk about tolerating one another, if you spend some time with me, you will find out there's something about my personality that probably makes you twitch. I don't know what that is because it depends on what your personality is, right? We are not all the same. But as long as it's not something doctrinal or sinful, we tolerate one another. You know, there, there are, if you think about it, we're, we're a fairly diverse group of people outside of our Christianity. You know, there's many of you that we would have probably never run into one another if we were not brethren, because we may not have a lot in common outside of our Christianity. And so because we have all come to our relationship with God at different points in our life, in different ways, you know, I didn't grow up in the, in the Lord's church. And so when I obeyed the gospel, there were all sorts of things that had to be explained or pointed out to me so that I could understand where does that come from and why do you do it? And I know folks were very tolerant with me early on. Well, we are to be that way with one another. And again, as long as, as was pointed out, we're not talking about sin or doctrinal issues. We can't, we can't say, okay, well, you know, that's, I really think that's error, but we'll tolerate it because we're brethren. No, that's not what it's saying. That's how we got the denominational world, right? Everybody kind of goes in their own corner. They come at things from a different angle. And yet, if you talk to folks who are denominational, they generally view things as there's this 
giant dome of Christianity and everybody's just coming at it a little bit differently, right? We, we cannot, the scriptures don't present things that way. In fact, what we're going to see today, one hope, right? There is, there is not a variety of approaches and a variety of ways that we can come at this. Thank you for good comments. Let's look at verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being diligent or endeavoring, uh, as the King James says, Paul tells the Ephesians to work at preserving the unity they have in Christ. Now, what were they? Let's remind ourselves when we think about we talk about tolerance and loving one another and forbearing with one another. We're talking about Jew and Gentile Christians, right? They've been taught, as we saw in the first uh, three chapters now, about the fact that they both are in a right relationship with God, right? Equally. And yet, I can't think of... Two groups of people that had a more varied background that they, than they had. And as we know, you know, there were Jewish Christians that brought parts of their Jewish practices into their Christianity. Now they were no longer, and it was pointed out, they could not practice those as something that God, um, that God commanded. But there were some who practice some of the things that they brought in from being Jews, right? Gentiles had led a very different life. Now they come together as brethren in one congregation, and they've got to be able to serve God in a unified manner and approach him together as brethren. That'd be a tough thing. That'd be a very challenging thing. Uh, again, for us, there's so much that the scriptures teach us about how we are to interact with one another so that we are standing strong here as a congregation and that we aren't, uh, having challenges with one another. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So if we're going to be diligent to preserve that unity, that means we need to keep watch over the unity that we have as a congregation. Would you not agree? Verse 4 through 6, there's one body and one spirit, just also as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So after teaching the brethren there at Ephesus how they are to walk and treat each other, Paul goes on to teach here how Christians are to determine and stand for the truth found in the gospel. And again, in this case, Paul drills down very specifically, so there's no question about what he is talking about. One body, 
the universal church following the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Get a microphone back here, please. Around the corner, Cam. Hey, Eric, um, I wanted to just point out when we're coming into four, he starts off talking talking about the unity. He talks about those four those characteristics that that calling that a disciple of Christ should have, right? Um, and I think we get sometimes focused in on uh, coming in at agreement with one another on specific issues, and that's where we derive our unity. Mm. And I think we just need to be careful as disciples that that's not, that's not what he's saying here in this passage at all. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at one another and say, oh, yeah, we agree on these same issues, possibly, and that's not what he's saying. The oneness comes from, comes from Jesus. Is He's bringing together Jews and Gentiles, and he's starting out. And I just think it's easy for us to look at this one faith, one baptism. And I think we immediately already think about singularity. But I think I, I would tend to agree more on the other side of oneness and unity, bringing together people. Because then I think when we start thinking about your comment, um, our, our minds start going in, okay, what are, we agree- what are we in agreement on and what are we not in agreement on? And I think that's not what he's talking about here. He's bringing, we're bringing together Jews and Gentiles. We're bringing together the rest of the world through Jesus. And I really think that's where, and he even starts on with those characteristics, not, hey, also make sure you guys are in agreement on everything. no. You, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, 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 I understand exactly what you're saying, and I don't disagree with the overall um, presentation of this that he's making here. Now, as we, the further we get into all of this, the more we realize that we we do have to be unified. In doctrine, because again, denominationalists would take a look at this and they would say, we all believe in Christ, right? Is that enough? Certainly not, right? Scriptures would not, would not present truth that way. But I agree, I agree with you completely on how this is being presented. The one body is... Again, as I see it, the universal church, God's church, universal, which what's the difference between a universal and local church? What she said was uh, universal church includes all Christians everywhere, which is exactly right. Uh, Local church is like us. We are a local church of the Lord's people, right? But it is, when we talk about um, brethren throughout the world, we are unified with them as Christians, right? We may have never met them. We don't worship with them uh, necessarily, 
but we are all one body. We are all part of the Lord's universal church. One spirit. Uh, I believe this is pointing out that there is one Holy Spirit, part of the Godhead, and his job was to inspire those who wrote the scriptures and those who prophesied. One hope of your calling. Christians are united in the hope of heaven. We're confident in the redeeming blood of Christ. One Lord. Christians do all in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it is in him and him alone that we place our hope and trust. One faith, true Christians are unified in their belief of the truth and doctrine found in the Bible. Uh, No need for further statements of faith, no need for uh, creeds or other doctrines. We all have one faith. Comments on any of this? I think these introductory verses here in chapter 4 bind with this vocation, this work to which we are called. The work cannot be accomplished if there's hypocrisy in love, if there's disunity in effort, if uh, there is division in the church. And the scripture is very good, at it, and, and Paul as well, addressing this to the Corinthians and to the Thessalonians and, and uh, the Galatians and others where there was disunity, where there were those who disagreed with the doctrine and that. And so as I read this, it is an encouragement for us to consider each day our walk. Are we divided? Are there things that we have against our brother? And if there are, God says, you need to get that straight before you come here and assemble and praise God, uh, having something on your heart. And so this oneness that he, he teaches is, is biblical, scriptural unity. That's the unity of the spirit. God is not a God of confusion, nor is he a respecter of persons. And so Paul reemphasizes that to us, uh, to not uh, regard one another in hypocrisy or in division or in hate or in anger. And that's our calling, to be different from the world. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Bruce. I just wanted to say on the universal church side, um, I... uh, I find out through other Christians and elders and deacons that there's Christians around the world that are suffering. They suffer persecution or, or they need uh, money for a lawyer or something. So in that way, we can, we can support our other brethren by helping them in our hard times of need. And sometimes they'll come back and they'll visit with you or whatever. And they'll be like, I'm brother so-and-so that you helped. Or whatever, and it makes you realize that you can you can help the little little things like that help help the brethren stay strong, and it helps them stay faithful. 
And it doesn't matter where you go in the world, if you see another Christian and you say, hi, brother, hi, sister, they'll say it back to you. And that's, that's just a beautiful thing. Very good point. And that's an excellent point. <laughs> We've done some travel and we have worshipped with brethren that spoke a different language than we spoke. And yet, the practices that we found in those churches, although they may organize that practice a little bit differently, right, than the way we would do our order of worship or whatever it might be, uh, they're practicing the same things that we practice as Christians because all of us are using the same pattern. I think that we should also consider how fortunate we are that there, that this does not change. There's always one God, one faith, one baptism. In this world we live in, things are always changing. Doctor, doctrines in different religions, they change their practices. They change what they believe. This is not going to change. This is why we have our hope here. This is security for us. We don't have to worry that it's going to shift and are we doing the right thing this week. It's always the same. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point, Debbie. Uh, whether it's now or 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, if Christ is not yet returned, brethren at that time, just like these brethren, are going to learn the same truths they're going to practice their Christianity in the same fashion. And that's a wonderful thing to be able to have that confidence in our Christianity and that confidence in who we are and, and what we are doing. Very good. Thank you all for very good comments. One baptism was the last one that we see there. Uh, let's look at Galatians 3 all right, quick. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26. Galatians 3, 26 reads, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's stated perfectly, as all scripture is. But it's stated in such a manner that you can clearly understand that we are all, that baptism as part of the plan of God's plan of salvation all of us who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ, and it doesn't matter what our background was. It doesn't matter who we were prior to that, but as long as we have followed the pattern, we are all Christians in a right relationship with God. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is only one God, the Father, who has all authority over creation, and he's the only God that Christians serve. 
So for sake of time, I'm going to move past a little bit of what I had on that. Um, let's look at 7 through 10. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That comes from Psalm 68, 18. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens so that he might fill in all things. So, I believe the statement there in verse 7, where it says, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. I think that's speaking about what we're going to see down in verse 11 of the different offices or functions, if you will, that he gave so that the church was complete, so that churches at that time had what they needed to be able to learn and understand the word. Uh, Some would look at that and see where it says... uh, Some gave gifts uh, according to the measure of Christ's gift that it is speaking about uh, spiritual gifts specifically. Spiritual gifts are certainly involved. And why were they involved? Well, somebody tell me right quick, what is a spiritual gift and why did those exist at that time? Okay, because the Bible, the scriptures were not assembled at that time, right? As this letter was new to this church at the time they received it, they did not have the written word, so spiritual gifts existed so that truth could be confirmed from those who spoke it and those who preached it, uh, and so that by inspiration, the scriptures were written. That's, that's exactly right. All right, verses 8 through 10 there, they discuss the fact that Jesus descended, so he came down from heaven to earth to live as a man. When he died, when he physically died, his spirit went into the Hadean realm and... His physical body went into the grave. He rose and ascended to heaven, and he had conquered death at that time, right? Luke 23, 43. Take a look at that, please. And this is Christ. He spoke to the thief on the cross. Luke 23, 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So, Christ came down to to earth. He lived here. He conquered death and he ascended. Okay? 
John 3, 12. Take a look at that. This is Jesus speaking, John 3, 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So this is Jesus speaking about himself. So verses 11 through 13, and he gave some as apostles and some, back to Ephesians, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So in these verses, then, Paul explains what Christ put in place so that his church, his people, would be uh, properly taught and properly trained. So, first thing uh, that we see there is apostles. Now, the word that was originally translated apostle here means messenger. On some occasions, it was translated uh, differently. I believe in this case, it's talking about the apostles, the 12 apostles, personally selected by Jesus to carry his message. Then the prophets. So these were men who spoke what God gave them to speak. So they were inspired teachers, and they oftentimes worked with the apostles. Look at Acts 13, 1 right quick. 